investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 23 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslering. Today is Friday, July 19th, and despite it being the dog days of summer, still a number of very interesting events in the markets happening over the past week that we're going to touch on this week off the top. Netflix had a real tough quarter as they announced a decline in U.S. subscribers. Their stock subsequently dropped 10% as growth slowed. Are Netflix best days behind it? Ultimate irony as activist hedge fund Pershing Square gets its own activist. So tables turned on Bill Ackman's Pershing Square. What's this activist looking to achieve? Stunning story out of the Wall Street Journal on WeWork and its founder exiting $700 million worth of stock before it does its initial public offering. Should investors be concerned about this? Then we're going to talk about Symantec, a potential M&A deal that was in the works publicly announced uh, a rumor of Broadcom going to acquire Symantec, but that deal fell apart at the 11th hour with Broadcom walking away and Symantec shares falling precipitously. We're going to talk about why things fell apart on that deal. And lastly, we're going to touch on our blog post this week entitled The Trend is Your Friend, a discussion on trend investing. Getting to the Netflix quarter, well, its stock slumped about 10% after reporting its second quarter results, which missed its own guidance by a substantial margin. The company added just 2.7 million subscribers globally in the quarter, well below its guidance for 5 million editions. So they missed their own guidance by almost 50%. I know the street was slightly above their guidance at roughly 5.1 million ads. And they got to only 2.7 million, which certainly disappointed investors. Another really disappointing fact about the quarter was they actually lost 130,000 subscribers in the U.S., in the quarter. Now, this is the first time that they actually lost subscribers on a net basis since 2011. So they've had consistent growth in the U.S. for nearly eight years, and and this is the first quarter in which that reversed. So subscriber growth for Netflix is perhaps the most important metric for investors. It's far more important than any sort of fundamental financial metrics, such as uh, revenue or cash flow, return on equity, anything like that. Number one, investors really care about subscriber growth. One potential reason for the decline in U.S. subscribers is the company recently raised prices for all of its U.S. customers. The price of a standard Netflix subscription now costs 13 bucks a month, and this is actually a dollar higher than one of their main rivals, Hulu. But Netflix already has quite the strong grip in the U.S. They were really the pioneer in the streaming sector. They had a huge head start on all their competitors. They currently have more than 60 million Americans paying for a Netflix subscription. But you got to, that raises the question, have they reached the saturation point in the U.S.? If you think about it, there's 128 million U.S. households. If you take into account password sharing, because each subscriber has a number of Uh, accounts that can subscribe under it. 
in addition to some households obviously not being interested in Netflix, then that makes you think, you know, they're already at uh, roughly nearly half of households and many others would share that same password. So, you know, many are asking, have they reached that point of saturation in which they're kind of in a no growth environment in the U.S.? It's kind of a major consideration that investors are thinking about right now. Nonetheless, Netflix blamed its content slate for this large miss in subscriber growth. The main reason for the disappointing results, according to Netflix's letter to shareholders, they stated, quote, Q2's content slate drove less growth in paid net ads than we'd anticipated. So they're addressing um, the decline in net addition, net additional subscribers on uh, in their Q2 letter. The company said it expected that uh, U.S. will return to more typical growth in the third quarter. So they gave guidance of U.S. subscriber growth of 800,000. So they're expecting reversal there based on new content, including um, new seasons from Stranger Things and Orange is the New Black. So a couple of their hit shows expecting to drive subscriber growth uh, in the current quarter. Analysts expect the company to invest a stunning $15 billion in content this year. Now, Netflix is burning, or they're expected to burn $3 billion in cash flow this year. And so their capital expenditures of $15 billion are expected to exceed their operating cash flows by $3 billion, which has been the case for a long time. So they're investing heavily in content, and they're still really not getting that U.S. growth. So that trend certainly could be a huge concern for investors, in my opinion. Now, another major looming factor is that their disappointing quarter comes as the company faces looming competition in the streaming market that it pioneered. They're facing upcoming competition with Disney. Disney is just a goliath in the content space, and they're coming out with a really interesting offering in the near term, along with Apple, AT&T, which recently acquired Time Warner, and they have a ton of good content, and then Comcast. So you have these four heavyweights entering the streaming arena shortly, and a lot of them, uh, they're now starting to take back their content. You saw that Netflix is losing Friends, they're losing The Office, and those are two massive series, massive shows for them, and those will be gone soon as these competitors take that content back. So certainly, you know, rough time currently for Netflix. And I think they face a pretty perilous future just given the substantial uptick in competition that's uh, that's coming down the line here. But nonetheless, Reed Hastings, Netflix CEO, remains confident as ever in the business and conference call. He stated, quote, if investors believe in internet TV, our position in the market is very strong. So there you have it. That's straight from the mouth of Netflix's CEO. What are your thoughts on their latest quarter and the future of Netflix? Yeah, so going back to some of your earlier points is, number one, the comment that their the lack of growth, well, the decline in U.S. subscribers being their content to blame. Well, that's kind of an issue if you're spending $15 billion per year on content. So that would, I would argue, that's not a very good excuse. That's actually a, a bigger negative if that's actually the issue. Right, because they invest billions of dollars to get growth. And if you're not getting that growth, then where's that return on capital? Absolutely. And then an, another thing is that their the entire bull thesis on on Netflix has been their pricing power. And I've seen analysis that shows that they have pricing power in the 18 to $20 per subscriber range per month, and even up as high as I've seen analysis at like $25. 
And that is very high. And so keep in mind that I believe they spent about $10 billion or so on content last year, and they're expecting to spend $15 billion this year. So that's about a 50% increase. Meanwhile, they're only able to increase their their pricing at 18%. So right there, you're seeing that their costs are, are growing faster than their revenue, which is negative, but also you're seeing an increase in churn through that 18% increase. So overall, that I think that's really a big a big issue with the bull case. Um, well, the, the only thing that I would mention in defense for Netflix is that this is 130,000 subscribers lost on a base of, of around 60 million. So that's about 0.2% of their subscriber base. So if they do in fact just continue, this is just a blip and they continue growing, that's fair. Doesn't do a big damage to the overall to the overall thesis, but it will be interesting to watch. The other aspect that I did wanna bring up is how they've handled this earnings miss and their lack of a pre-announcement. So companies like Apple and Microsoft when they know they're gonna fall short of analyst estimates or their own estimates, they'll pre-announce or update their guidance. Netflix doesn't do this. And I guess it could, there could be some rationale for them not doing this was that yes, they were going to miss on their subscribers, but they did have a slightly larger profit than they had expected. But like you had mentioned earlier, Julian, the subscribers are the biggest factor when looking at the company. And the other aspect is they could have just seen this as being inevitable that this stock price was going to take a hit with this news, whether they issued the news three weeks ago or a month ago or today, not really a big deal. It's still going down. Right. Um, And we need to take into account that if you look at the share price performance around pretty much any quarter from Netflix, it's going to be wildly positive or wildly negative, just given the variance and the volatility in the results. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of on speak, speaking to that point is on average, their daily share move on the day of their announcements is 13%. Huh. Compare that to 7.3% for Amazon, 7% for Facebook and 4.4% for Apple. That's a really, that's a lot of volatility. Certainly, and holding Netflix stock throughout quarterly results isn't for the faint of heart. As you noted, a pretty tremendous volatility as investors try to you know, predict what they're going to release in that quarterly result. Now, you talked on uh, a number of interesting considerations, and you mentioned kind of how the price of Netflix, it's obviously very highly valued. And so I believe price increases are baked into that valuation. You talked about pricing power and how the market really expects them to increase prices. However, they did increase price this quarter, and that was a main reason why they missed their guidance and missed estimates so badly. And then, you know, they're going to lose $3 billion uh, negative cash flow this year. So to make this a sustainable business, they obviously can't be losing billions and billions. Every year at some point, they need to get that to positive free cash flow. Well, how are they gonna do it? It seems like they can't let off the gas in terms of content production, just given the tremendous competition coming out in the near term. So they're gonna 
keep the pedal to the metal on content production of which they're spending 15 billion. That looks like it's only going to go higher. And so what else can they do? Well, raise price, but does that risk slowing down the growth, which obviously the market doesn't like. You also have to take into account competition for content. There's just so much competition out there for quality content. So clearly, you know, on a supply demand perspective, you can expect that cost for quality content is only going to get higher. And therefore, you know, the amount that they need to invest in content every year is certainly investors should expect that to increase over time further. Absolutely. And in terms of if they look to get into other areas like, you know, sports, things like that, that isn't going to be cheap to get into as well, which will only push up prices. And what I'm referring to as the ultimate irony, activist investor Bill Ackman's his publicly listed hedge fund, which is effectively a closed-end fund called Pershing Square Holdings. It actually got its own activist investor and as investment firm called Asset Value Investors, it went public with its own activist campaign against the hedge fund. Now, this activist wants Pershing Square to pursue a more aggressive share buyback program to close the discount between the fund's trading price and its net asset value or the value of all of its underlying holdings. Asset value investors owns about uh, 3% of Pershing Square Holdings, which trades in London, I believe. Uh, it's pushing back against Pershing Square's decision to issue $400 million of 20-year debt without consulting shareholders. So those are the main complaints from this activist investor. They don't want them to issue debt. They'd rather see them uh, conduct a more effective share buyback program. The reason that they're pursuing that is that Pershing Square, its share price is actually 30% lower. At, it's at a 30% discount to its net asset value. That means that it's trading 30% less than the value of all its underlying holdings. Now its underlying holdings are very liquid uh, equities such as Starbucks and Chipotle. But one reason for this discount is performance. Since Pershing Square Holdings went public in 2014, they're actually down 26%. That's roughly over a five-year performance of negative 26% versus the S&P 500, which is up 74% over that period. So roughly 100% divergence from its underlying benchmark and investors Certainly aren't happy about that. Got a quote here from this activist asset value investors. They stated, quote, shareholders have suffered from a persistently wide and growing discount to NAV or net asset value, which is even more remarkable given the company's investment portfolio is comprised of large cap liquid listed securities. So there you have it. That's a quote from the activist here. And I should note that there's some detail on their position. So they actually went long Pershing Square Holdings and they shorted some of the underlying stock within Pershing Square's portfolio. So they are actually hedged. They're looking to capitalize on the closing of the discount to net asset value. And so this is a strategy that we call closed end fund arbitrage, which we have uh, you know, a number of years of experience doing. So it's uh, interesting to see asset value investors to conduct uh, an activist com campaign combined with a closed end fund arbitrage strategy on Pershing Square Holdings. What are your thoughts on this interesting activist situation? First, specific to just closed end fund arbitrage is that you wouldn't see this type of discount in Canada just because the closed end funds in Canada typically do have a one uh, once a year special redemption where you are able to redeem at NAV, which so that means 
get your money back. You can effectively, they buy back your stake in the fund and they give you cash or securities at net asset value. Absolutely. So that that plays a role in constraining the amount of the discount of to NAV. Uh, whereas this 31% or 28%, I believe right now, discount that they're trading at is really high given the nature you had mentioned how liquid the names are. They're large cap names. There's only about 10, 10 names in their portfolio. And really, you would typically see about a 10 to 15% discount. And so that's why this is quite interesting, specific to Pershing Square. And the other interesting aspect is that just because of the nature of Bill Ackman's investment strategy is he would be railing against a management team that was, you know, continuing with actions like these. And so that's where you can find a lot of, of good points with asset value investors is they make the argument that right now, after this debt issuance, they're, the funds tar- debt, debt to equity ratio will be about 25%. And so if that is their new targeted debt to equity ratio in terms of their capital structure, that they could have achieved this through buybacks instead by just buying back equity and and you know controlling that side of the equation as opposed to increasing the debt level. So this is very clearly about increasing the assets under management, which is where Pershing Square gets management fees from. So that's entirely this the strategic rationale behind this. Yeah, you look at their incentives uh, to close that discount. They need to buy back stock, do a tender offer, or worst case, liquidate. And there goes their assets. They're going to be making less money. So certainly incentives for Bill Ackman are to do nothing about this. But as you indicated, he is an activist and this would be the exact strategy that he would use on um, another fund uh, if he had the chance. So it's somewhat ironic. And it's I think it's a really uh, interesting strategy in terms of closed-end fund arbitrage. There's a number of players in North America who conduct, conduct that. We used to we have done a number of these in the past, more so on a, a more so quiet basis, but there are a number that do it in the U.S. Bulldog Investors is a hedge fund that you know, it's really their bread and butter, which is closed-end fund activism. I believe Saba Capital Management uh, is getting into that as well. So it's really a tried and true strategy. In fact, I believe Warren Buffett used to do it in, in his uh, back in his Buffett partnership days, which is, you know, buy an undervalued closed end fund and agitate for some sort of uh, event to get it to net asset value, whether it be a, a liquidation or a tender offer or something of that nature. I know for uh, Sanborn Maps, he convinced them to sell out of their, their uh, investment portfolio and uh, either distribute the proceeds or buy back stock. And so it can be a lucrative strategy if the opportunity is there. But in this situation, uh, ladies and gents, grab your popcorn and uh, watch what happens here because we think it's a very interesting and entertaining situation. I would just like to bring up one more point on the debt itself is that Asset Value Investors also pointed out that it does carry a 31% make whole premium that would be repaid if that would be made if the debt is repaid before maturity. So this actually acts as kind of a quasi poison pill that really limits their ability for you know flexible capital allocation in terms of buybacks in the future if they wanted to repay debt and and uh, buy back more shares. 
a bombshell of a story in the Wall Street Journal this week where they revealed that WeWork, which is the massive co-working real estate company. So WeWork's co-founder and CEO, Adam Newman, has cashed out more than $700 million of his WeWork stock ahead of their anticipated initial public offering. Again, that IPO rumored to be happening in the near term. So it's something that we do expect in 2019. Now this Revelation comes amidst previously discovered corporate governance mishaps at the company, including when Newman acquired commercial real estate buildings in order to lease them back to WeWork. So certainly some concern from a corporate governance perspective at WeWork. Now, this is problematic because historically venture capitalists and other investors have been skeptical of sales by founders and executives of the startups that they back prior to the IPO. They prefer that these insiders have skin in the game, keep their wealth tied to the company's fortunes until it goes public. So Newman, what he did, he recently sold, you know, all this stock. No one knows exactly what his remaining position is, but certainly 700 million is unprecedented in terms of size of pre-IPO startup cash outs. But what he did with his money is one of the many things is he set up a family office to invest the proceeds and has begun to hire financial professionals to run it. He's obviously bought a bunch of commercial real estate in order to lease back to WeWork. Uh, he's also spent more than $80 million on at least five homes. But like I said, this is the largest startup exit by a founder prior to IPO. He's kind of been steadily selling shares over the past five years. Since 2014, If and if we look at a couple precedents, I saw... Or, Exits by founders or early backers of more than 100 million in both Zynga and Groupon. And if we look back at that post IPO performance of both those companies, well, it wasn't pretty. Those stocks tanked pretty dramatically. So it gives you an indication of what you could perhaps expect. Uh, just given the dynamics here on the WeWork pre-IPO insider stock sales. What are your thoughts on this really cool story from the Wall Street Journal unveiling uh, these kind of corporate governance, additional corporate governance mishaps at WeWork? Yeah, so in addition to the actual sales, he's also yeah taken out the loans that are collateralized by his shareholdings. And so that, has, that side has been facilitated by JP Morgan. And so what's interesting about that relationship is that JP Morgan is leading WeWork's um, efforts in another financing round that they're wanting to complete right before the IPO of another three to four billion dollars and then raise an, an, an amount of money in the IPO. And so you can see where there's a little bit of a conflict there where they're lending to the CEO based on the, with the collateral of the shares while they're also doing a financing for the company. So that's a little bit interesting. But the other interesting aspect is just whenever you talk about WeWork, you talk about their valuation and in particular SoftBank. And so when, when WeWork was last valued at $47 billion, that was when they had raised a round of $2 billion from SoftBank. And to clarify, SoftBank being a Japanese conglomerate run by Masayoshi Sun, Jap Japan's uh, wealthiest individual and SoftBank runs 
the $100 billion Vision Fund, which is by far the largest venture capital fund on the planet. Absolutely. And, and he's one of himself is one of the richest, uh, one of the richest men in the world. And so the interesting aspect of that $2 billion raise that they got from SoftBank is that $1 billion of the proceeds was actually used to buy out existing shareholders at a $20 billion valuation versus that $47 billion valuation that SoftBank was, was uh, investing in. And so the Financial Times actually did some great due diligence here where they got their hands on some documents looking at where institutional investors are coming in at in their valuation and where their interest lies in trading uh, WeWork. And the midpoint, you know, way below the $47 billion is actually around the $23 billion range so that's really interesting as I'm, I would be very interested to see how these investment banks are pitching um, WeWork on their IPO when you're seeing institutional demand at that $23 billion range. That would be a tough pill to swallow for WeWork. Yeah, not just that, but you talk about valuation. And at the end of the day, I'm still shocked by what WeWork has been able to accomplish here, that incredibly tremendous valuation for just a real estate company that is generating tremendous losses. I believe they're losing billions of dollars per year, but they've somehow managed to perhaps hoodwink investors to assigning them a valuation far in excess of any of their comparables. And as you know, we see um, you know, probably hundreds of other co-working startups that are executing the exact same business model. So it appears like there's really no uh, barriers to entry behind here, nothing proprietary, no real competitive advantage, aside from perhaps a little bit of brand name behind WeWork, but they've not only gotten this incredibly massive valuation, but they've allowed the CEO to cash out a huge portion of his stake for hundreds of millions of dollars, in fact, almost a billion dollars, prior to them really showing any uh, sustained success. So I think this WeWork uh, situation specifically is really important for investors to pay attention to. I mean, the amount of red flags, you look at it and you can't help but think, man, this thing is going to be a case study in the future on, uh, you know, what can go wrong. And who knows, perhaps we'll be proven wrong on this one. But I think that investors should take notes about what's happening here and then also note the post IPO performance if it in fact does ever go public because I don't think that it has a bright future as a public company, just given all these red flags, it's uh, actually pretty shocking. Absolutely, and, and in terms of the bull case that is that is touted with WeWork, is the base, it's, it's summarized in that once they get to scale, they'll have bargaining power over their landlords and they'll be able to dictate their own terms as well as renegotiate leases in a downturn. And to me, that just doesn't really seem like a strong bull thesis where you're relying on renegotiating in a downturn and the power over your landlords. It just doesn't seem like a compelling thesis for me. And you got to think about the current environment that we're in and, you know, the economy is doing great. Well, what happens to WeWork when the economy falters, when not so many startups are getting funded to be able to pay them, you know, the cash flow they rely? Because what WeWork does is they sign long-term leases with commercial 
um, building owners, uh, office building owners, and they rent them out on a short-term basis. Well, what happens during a recession? There's going to be far fewer companies renting out that space. So one of the bear cases, dis- aside from this huge valuation, is look, they can't make money in a bull market. Well, what happens when uh, you know during a recession? You know how much. Uh, well, they suffer when we face a downturn of which it's never really faced before. Wanted to touch on some M&A, some merger and acquisition activity, actually a deal, a potential deal. It fell apart this week. So semantic shares plummeted as much as 15% this week as would-be acquirer Broadcom actually walked away from this rumored takeover. What happened there was the semantic board was insisting on at least $28 per share. Now, Broadcom initially offered $28.25 and it looked all good, but what happened was it actually pulled its bid down by a couple bucks after it discovered some things it didn't like during the due diligence process when it was closely examining Symantec's books. What was stunning also is that, you know, this deal seemed quite close to being signed. I mean, uh, media reported that Broadcom had $21 billion in financing already lined up. The companies were expecting $1.5 billion in cost synergies. And if you follow the markets, you know that Broadcom is just a voracious acquirer. Uh, they're a real consolidator, not only in the um, semiconductor space anymore, but clearly they're moving on to software with, you know, Symantec or the attempted acquisition of Symantec. Getting into um, some other deals that Broadcom has done, because they're a real deal junkie. So they recently bought CA Technologies for $19 billion just last year. And if you also remember, they tried to purchase another giant Qualcomm, but the US DOJ, the Department of Justice, blocked that deal because uh, Broadcom is uh, an offshore entity. But Symantec shares, they have been dogged in recent years by management turnover and a softer core business as cloud security companies have captured enterprise market share and as newer companies offer ways to protect mobile devices. So Broadcom looking to bring Symantec under their wing, extract some synergies and really harvest that cash flow. But I guess it's not meant to be with Broadcom abandoning Symantec at the altar and no deal being signed. Symantec shares, there's Symantec shareholders not to happy with it, with the stock falling 15%. And also another hedge fund investment strategy here is what we call pre-arb, where you get into a deal stock on rumors, hoping that a definitive agreement is struck at a premium to your buy price so you can make short-term money. But here it looks like hedge funds involved in pre-arb getting burned as no deal is to be had. What are your thoughts on this M&A situation? It's the really interesting aspect of this was how quickly everything came together. You had mentioned that they had secured around $21 billion worth of financing for the transaction. And this was, the discussions really only lasted 15 days. So it is quite interesting on how quickly it came together. The other aspect is that this was part of Broadcom, the strategic rationale for Symantec was that they are over-levered. They had about $4.5 billion worth of debt, so there was some issues on that side. But for Broadcom, this was really around getting out of their, or sorry, diversifying outside of their semiconductor industry. And what's interesting about that is just in terms of Broadcom's revenue, I wanted to highlight a couple of things, was that they actually derived 13% of their revenue from Apple and also 4% from Huawei. So this actually leaves them quite vulnerable to the impacts of the trade war, which just 
exasperate, really made them very interested in Symantec in diversifying outside of some of these traditional revenue sources. Right. And it's not just Broadcom that's struggling in the semiconductor space, but pretty much every semiconductor producer is really struggling with what's happening uh, with the U.S.-China trade war. So clearly here, Broadcom looking to further diversify its revenues. And as I said, it's a real veteran in the M&A game. They've done a ton of acquisitions. That's really the thing that investors expect out of Broadcom is they're like a shark. They got to keep moving. They got to keep doing deals in order to survive. They are a consolidator, a deal junkie in the space. And they have had pretty tremendous success with that strategy, their stock uh, appreciating quite markedly over the past number of years on the back of that acquisition strategy. We put out some research this week in a blog post entitled, The Trend is Your Friend, Long Short Investing Using the Trend Factor. So when we talk about trend, what do we mean? Well, I refer to trend and there's many different definitions out there in terms of what trend means, but specifically the factor that we're talking about, we look at a number of different moving averages. So we like to look at when stocks 50-day moving average, how that compares to its 200-day moving average. Now, what a moving average of a stock refers to is basically the average closing price over the past number of days. So the 50-day moving average, that refers to the average closing price of a stock over the past 50 days. Now, what this research revealed is we did run some simulations on Canadian and U.S. stocks over the past 20 years. We did... uh, Uh, looked at it on a monthly rebalanced frequency and over the past 20 years divided the market up into deciles or each 10% and discovered that the top 10% of trending stocks, that is the stocks in which their 50-day moving average was the highest above their 200-day moving average, denoting a very good trend. In Canada, those that basket of stocks, the top 10% trending stocks, returned 17.4% annually over the past 10 years, which $100,000 invested at a 17.4% rate over 20 years. 100K would turn into about $2.5 million, and that's, uh, I believe, double um, the stock market return. Not just that, but on uh, if we look at the bottom 10%, so the stocks with the worst trend, those are stocks whose 50-day moving average are far below their 200-day moving average. Now, those declined 10% per year over 20 years, and that's in an environment where the market went up perhaps uh, 8% per year. So if you invested in that bottom decile poor trend portfolio, with that same hundred grand, it would have shrunk to only about twelve thousand dollars. So that's nearly a ninety thousand or ninety percent loss over two decades uh, utilizing these trend factors. And of course, for a hedge fund such as ours, we would look to go long the top decile trend and short the bottom decile because if you short these poorly performing securities, it can add further outperformance. If we look at the spread between the top and the bottom decile, you know that's nearly 28% per year, which would obviously be a pretty outstanding return. The number is quite similar in the U.S., The same 20-year simulation revealed a nearly 13% annualized return for the top decile trend portfolio, that is stocks whose 50-day moving average are furthest above their 200-day moving average. And then conversely, for the bottom 10%, the lowest decile with the poorest trend, losing nearly 6% per year. 
So I just wanted to point out that investing based on trend, looking at different moving averages, it's something worthwhile for investors to consider. Even if you're more of a fundamental investor, it's really worthwhile looking at, you know, where does this stock trade with respect to its trend? And I really would recommend, you know, looking to go long. If you are looking to go long stock, make sure that it has a good trend and uh, certainly don't buy shares who have a poor trend or, as I say, enterprising investors. You could even considering shorting stocks who do have poor trends just to hedge and generate additional alpha against their long portfolio. And that wraps it up, ladies and gents, for episode 23 of the Absolute Return podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can find plenty more on absolutereturnpodcast.com. Uh, check those out. And until next week, cheers, and we'll chat to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.